Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. A policy set in place to protect Vietnamese immigrants who've been in the country for more than 20 years is now in jeopardy. People are more concerned. Um, we hear a lot about the deportation and all that stuff, so we're def- I do see that people are more uh, nervous and, and worried about that. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll discuss how the Trump administration's immigration policies are having an impact in New England. And each state is in a battle with other states to bring in jobs and business. Their weapons of choice? Corporate subsidies. It helps us show that we have something competitive to put on the table with other states. It shows that there's a willingness from the state to have some skin in the deal. When corporate welfare works and when it doesn't. Plus, we'll remember a bizarre tragedy that shaped corporate regulation and the Boston neighborhood, the Great Molasses Flood. Supposedly, you can still smell the molasses when it gets hot enough. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to start with two intertwined crises, the partial shutdown of the federal government and the ongoing debate about tightened border security. The shutdown is entering its third week, and in New England, we're seeing a range of impacts. For instance, federal employees working on environmental conservation are being forced to put their work on hold. Here's Kurt Griffin from UMass Amherst. Our federal colleagues are caught up in this mess, and uh, it's not fair to them. It's not fair to the public that they uh, provide important services to. So that's just a very broken system, and, and and they're caught in the middle. And more critically, we're seeing senior citizens and residents living below the poverty line who may soon struggle to meet their basic food needs because of this shutdown. Here's Jason Jakubowski from FoodShare in Bloomfield, Connecticut. We have our orders in through March, but after that, A, we don't know whether we're going to get the food, and B, we, know, we do know that if the shutdown continues, we are not going to be um, reimbursed for storing and for distributing that food. The shutdown hinges on President Trump's attempt to get $5.7 billion from Congress to build a wall along the southern border of the U.S., He gave a primetime Oval Office address this past Tuesday where he made his case for a barrier. Some have suggested a barrier is immoral. Then why do wealthy politicians build walls, fences and gates around their homes? They don't build walls because they hate the people on the outside, but because they love the people on the inside. WBUR immigration reporter Shannon Dooling recently traveled to the border in Tijuana to speak to migrants waiting to apply for asylum to the U.S. She joins us now to tell us about what she saw. Shannon, welcome to Next. Thank you, John. You were just recently at the border. You were talking with people who'd come down from New England to do legal aid work, and you got a firsthand look of what was happening there as migrants are attempting to seek asylum, come into the United States, as the United States has more of a security presence there. How did all of this strike you as someone who's just been there? 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, I spent time in Tijuana talking mostly with people who are waiting to apply for asylum in the U.S., uh, which, of course, is a humanitarian form of relief. These are people who are making the argument that it's unsafe for them to return to their country. Uh, Many of those people were Central Americans uh, who made their way to the border as part of the migrant caravan that we we saw lots of coverage in um, in you know October November December, um, I, I had a few big takeaways uh, from from that time in Tijuana. First, is that we can build the tallest border wall on earth made of the strongest materials, and people I spoke to will still come to the southern border and they will still try to apply for asylum. Deterrence isn't something that is is really in their vocabulary. These are people who are are waiting their turn to present themselves to U.S. officials. They're trying to do this through legal channels. The second thing I was struck by is the number of children I encountered in Tijuana. There are just so many families with with young children who've been waiting there for months in some cases for their chance to, to enter the U.S. and apply for asylum. The U.S. government is saying, look, we need to stagger the number of people we allow in to apply for asylum. So stay here and wait. And and many of the people I spoke to are doing just that. They're They're waiting. You know, when the president refers to this, security emergency at the border as as one of of national security and it's a serious terrorism threat and i just i didn't see that type of emergency if i did see an emergency it it was a humanitarian emergency it was in tijuana it was one where people were were desperate um living in desperate circumstances and if there is an emergency in america this week it may well be that there's a government shutdown that's continuing, a government shutdown that has not only threatening to have hundreds of thousands of federal employees not get paid, but also it's removing some vital services, including some of those that are provided at the border. Did you hear anything this week from from the president or Democratic leadership that shows that we're any closer to breaking the stalemate? Short answer is no. Uh, You know, the president has entangled immigration and national security since the campaign trail in in 2016, and he's going to stick with that narrative. It's working for him. Um, The wall, as we mentioned, is a symbol for, for him and his base. For Democrats, it seems, you know, they're trying to set aside the the impasse over the wall for now and and focus on getting the government open and and getting federal employees back to work the senate minority leader chuck schumer of new york described the president's approach this way american democracy doesn't work that way we don't govern by temper tantrum no president should pound the table and demand he gets his way or else the government shuts down I don't know that that language is necessarily the stuff that compromises are made of, but um, the the fact is, in the in the meantime, we have dreamers who continue to live in limbo. We have TPS recipients, temporary protected status recipients, who who don't know what their future is in the U.S. And we have, you know, thousands and thousands of U.S. federal workers who don't know when they're going to get paid again. Something has to give, but I don't see either side budging anytime soon. Shannon Doolin covers immigration for WBUR and the New England News Collaborative. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Thank you. Shannon's colleague at WBUR, Simone Rios, is following another way these issues are intertwined. As the shutdown of the federal government continues, the backlog of cases in immigration court continues to grow. Now, some experts worry that immigrants missing court because of the shutdown are being denied due process. But as Simone tells us, some immigration advocates see the shutdown as a welcome respite. 
Since the shutdown began, dockets in immigration court have been frozen for those who aren't in custody. Lawyers say the freeze comes as immigration proceedings have reached a frenzied pace under the Trump administration. Providence-based immigration lawyer Hans Bremer says he often has far too little time to build a defense for his clients. With the shutdown, it's as if time has stopped. The court has been exceptionally busy for us. We're in there almost every day going to immigration court in Boston. And with the shutdown, it has allowed us to really sit back, take a look at what's happening in court, what needs to be done still on cases that might otherwise have to have been rushed. The day after Christmas, the Department of Justice issued a memo outlining the workings of immigration court under the shutdown. For immigrants in detention, cases are still being heard by judges obligated to work without pay. For those not in custody, hearings are suspended until funding resumes and furloughed judges return to work. That could mean people with hearings scheduled over the last few weeks could have to wait months, if not years, to get their day in court. Bremer says the extra time can mean the difference between deportation and staying in the country. For some clients, it's exceptionally beneficial. and may be exactly what they needed to be able to remain in the United States long term and even possibly win the case because we needed extra time to get a few documents or whatnot to help their case. But as much as the extra time could help in some cases, in others the impact can be harmful, if not devastating. Boston-based immigration attorney Carrie Doyle has a client with an asylum case who missed her court date because of the shutdown. Doyle says the woman's husband is facing death threats in El Salvador. If she gets asylum, her husband will also be able to stay in the United States. Doyle says the government shutdown was a curveball that could determine whether the man lives much longer. Her husband's in hiding. So we're hoping the husband's still alive when we need to try to bring him back. And considering the situation in his home country, that's not a guarantee. The furloughing of immigration judges also highlights the vast backlog of cases in courts across the country. Donna Lee Marks is a judge in San Francisco and president emeritus of the National Association of Immigration Judges. She says the backlog could consist of more than a million cases, and the government shutdown isn't likely to help. I have a backlog now, a current caseload of about 4,000 pending cases. And in a given week, I would say that I see either in person or through documents and, and ruling on motions about 100 cases. Marx calls the furloughing of immigration judges in irony, rooted in the president's fight against illegal immigration. But others say the chaos of the shutdown is consistent with the aims of the Trump administration. Here's Ivan Espinosa Madrigal of the Boston-based nonprofit Lawyers for Civil Rights. Even if this is not due to a policy directive that targets certain immigrants, the effect it is producing is essentially the same. We are depriving immigrants of an opportunity to appear in immigration court. While the lull in immigration court could help some immigrants build their cases, Espinosa Madrigal says on the whole, it's denying people their right to due process. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simon Rios. Meanwhile, it's not just border policy that the Trump administration is trying to change. There's also an effort to target some Vietnamese immigrants who arrived in the U.S. before 1995. The Boston area alone is home to more than 50,000 Vietnamese, many of whom arrived here following the war. Von Nguyen came to Connecticut as a refugee in 1980. She settled in Boston back in 1996. 
Shannon Dooling spoke with her at a community meeting in Dorchester. People are more concerned. Um, we hear a lot about the deportation and all that stuff, so we're def- I do see that people are more uh, nervous and, and worried about that. And, I mean, it's kind of like hitting home because my husband does not have a citizenship, and he's got a past, and so we're unsure. So we're just kind of very nervous, too. That past she talks about includes a criminal record. Those are the immigrants the Trump administration is targeting for deportation. But Luan Dao, a professor at UMass Boston, says many Vietnamese came to this country directly from rural poverty and war in their home country into a U.S. that wasn't very accepting of them. Even minor crimes more than 30 years ago could mean deportation for people who've raised families, started businesses, and served their time. In an opinion piece for Commonwealth Magazine, Dow wrote, if forced back to Vietnam, these neighbors could face a frightening future of social ostracism and possible government repression. Luan Dow is also commissioner for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Asian American Commission, and she joins us now. Welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. The Trump administration's working to get rid of an agreement that does not allow deportation of Vietnamese people who arrived in the U.S. before 1995. I'm wondering if you can tell us about this agreement between the countries and why 1995 was was the cutoff date. The United States went into a series of agreements with countries that it had not previously had repatriation agreements with in the post-9-11 period. There was an effort at that time to clear the detention centers, first of all, but also to create a sense of an optics of protecting the country in the post-9-11 hysteria or moment of fear. And in that moment, the Bush administration negotiated with the government of Cambodia to sign a memorandum of understanding that would allow for refugees to, for the first time, be deported back to Cambodia. It also entered secret negotiations for years with Laos and Vietnam. And with Vietnam in 2008, it entered a contract that would allow for anyone who arrived as an immigrant, not as a refugee, post-1995 to be repatriated, but not people who came as refugees prior to 1995 when the U.S. renewed diplomatic relations with Vietnam for the first time since the Vietnam War. And so that is why the cutoff date is 1995, and it is also why this is such an issue is because there is now an effort to not make any distinction between an immigrant experience and a refugee experience. You say in the piece that you wrote for Commonwealth Magazine that one of the the big problems you see with this abhorrent policy, uh, as you call it, is that it would set a bad example for people who have come to the United States as part of their work in other recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, maybe you can talk about that because we, we've heard some of those stories about people who've served the United States military and then they expect that they will be given some sort of help from the country that they helped to serve. Right. And this isn't just an expectation. It's a promise that many times, you know, the U.S. military, the representatives for the U.S. military and government, as well as, you know, the basic kind of international historical precedents around 
wartime relationships, right, and and the relationships between ally nations, suggest that people who help, such as translators, uh, who help the military and the governments of ally nations will then be supported and protected because we know that their lives are at risk and they know that going into the relationship, right, the contract that they are engaging with uh, with the U.S. military as translators or other allied forces. And so as a result of that, there is a lack of trust that is taking precedence over the allied nations' historical relationships, Mm -hmm. right? And I think it puts at risk not only the people who are helping our military and government, it's also putting at risk our own military Mm -hmm. personnel because it then renders them vulnerable to translators and people who are working with them who don't have that trust and could potentially turn on them as well. Lon Dow is Associate Professor of Asian American Studies and Transnational Cultural and Community Studies at UMass Boston. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Coming up, states battle for business and the weapon of war is corporate subsidy. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. States compete with other states to bring in business and to keep the businesses that they have. And the tool they use is corporate subsidies. That could mean tax breaks, a promise to build infrastructure, or to train workers. We've seen it across New England, from the recent bids for Amazon HQ2 to companies like GE that were lured from one state to the next. But what do we know about these incentive programs and how they work? Greg Leroy is executive director of Good Jobs First, and he's been tracking the corporate subsidy game for years. Greg, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. Why don't we start with that General Electric example. Back in 2016, GE announced that it's moving its headquarters from Fairfield, Connecticut, which is a suburban location not too far from New York City. They've been there for a long time, and they're going to move to the new big burgeoning tech hub of Boston, Massachusetts. Explain in your mind what exactly happened there. Well, I think General Electric was actually catching up with a long-ago curve, which is that there's been a back-to-the-city movement among corporate headquarters and and white-collar employment for more than a decade now. Um, If you're serious about attracting millennials, if you want to really attract tech talent, you need to be in an urban hub with a lot of public transportation service, frankly, and that's that's not Fairfield, Connecticut. It was the biggest subsidy deal in Massachusetts history at $145 million, and th- even that hasn't stopped the company from having big troubles ever since. And often, the company that is going to get this incentive package says, we're going to create or retain a certain number of jobs or create a certain amount of economic activity that will show the state or the municipality, that this is a good investment. Is it common to get some sort of assurance from the company that they're going to give something back for all the money that they're getting? 
Increasingly. I mean, that's really been the work of me and many other people for decades now. I sort of backed into this issue accidentally in the 1980s because we kept discovering that plants that were closing had gotten incentives. And when we read the fine print, it was legal to take the money and run. Of course, that's so facially outrageous that even by the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of states and cities began tightening up their rules to say, at least we're going to have a clawback that is a money back guarantee language that says for the life of the deal, we're going to hold you responsible for at least a certain number of jobs or a certain level of investment, or we're going to get a, give you a haircut. You're going to pay some back, or we're going to make the deal less lucrative you know, going forward. The other big change that's happened over time is that a lot more programs now are so-called performance-based, or you might say back-loaded. That is, the company doesn't get the tax break or the grant until after it delivers on its end of the deal. Uh, Let's talk about an example of a state incentive gone really, really wrong. Red Sox pitcher Kurt Schilling, (laughs) of course, someone who is very famous in New England. Uh, He had an idea for a video game uh, business called 38 Studios, and he went to the state of Rhode Island and he asked them for a bunch of money. What happened? Well, I got a deal, I think, worth $75 million, biggest one in state history there, It was in the recession, and it was a great example of how states got very sloppy and desperate in the recession and weren't carefully vetting deals. That is, they weren't looking up the credibility of the principals or the track record of the executives involved. The deal never really took off. There ended up being, you know, a criminal trial. The state had to borrow the money to pay for the deal and end up getting stuck with even more than $75 million in total debt with interest. Uh, it stands as a real poster child for be careful vetting deals and and always build in your protection. Make sure you've got collateral if you're going to stick your neck out for that much money. We're talking with Greg Leroy. He's executive director of Good Jobs First. And we're talking about corporate subsidies. Many states use these subsidies. In fact, almost all of them do in some way. There is one outlier in our region. It's the state of New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire traditionally says that we have a built-in tax advantage. We don't have a state income tax. We have a different sort of sales tax, and that allows the state to compete for business in a slightly different way. Todd Bookman from NHPR has been following whether or not New Hampshire is actually doing something different with corporate subsidies than the other states in the region. Let's listen to Todd's story. For many in New Hampshire, corporate subsidies are a taboo topic. The state historically doesn't offer them and wouldn't even consider them for Amazon when it was looking for its new headquarters. Here's Governor Sununu speaking about it last year. We don't play in the game of giving massive tax gimmicks and tax breaks and all that. Other states have to do that because they have to, because they have massive taxes. We've had the best tax breaks in this country for the last 200 years. No income tax, no broad-based sales tax. This is the New Hampshire advantage. Amazon was looking for more in a partner, though. It wanted corporate subsidies, and it got them, from Virginia and New York. In recent months, though, New Hampshire has landed three other corporate expansions, each worthy of a little horn tooting. Also, I'm hoping that you saw in the news yesterday uh, that BAE is coming to Manchester. That's Manchester Mayor Joyce Craig talking up BAE Systems, one of the world's largest defense contractors. It's creating somewhere between 400 and 800 new positions in a giant office park near the airport. It's the type of announcement any politician would love to make. But BAE's decision wasn't solely based on New Hampshire's tax climate. Also included in the state's pitch to BAE was an incentives package valued at just under $15 million. 
Just don't call it a corporate subsidy. Yeah, I would not call it a subsidy. Um, I would call it an innovative package that addresses BAE's needs for the future and just shows that New Hampshire knows how to get creative um, without giving away large subsidies. This is James Key Wallace. He's head of the New Hampshire Business Finance Authority, an organization that puts together innovative packages to encourage job creation in the state. The deal is a bit complicated, some may say innovative, but the upshot is the Business Finance Authority will buy the building in Manchester and then BAE will pay to lease it for 10 years. BAE can then purchase the building from the Finance Authority. In the end, the arrangement saves the company about 12 million bucks. It's all been approved by the state. Since we're not giving anything away, the actual cost to any taxpayers is zero. That's true at the state level. But the city of Manchester is also involved here. The Board of Aldermen approved a property tax savings proposal with BAE that's worth another $2 million. That's money the city won't see, can't spend on schools or roads. Two other recent expansions that got mentions during Sununu's inaugural speech follow similar playbooks. Hitchner in Milford is going to build a new plant in its hometown. And Lanza, a pharmaceutical giant, is going to expand its facility at Pease. All in, those two companies say they'll add more than 1,000 jobs. Sununu didn't mention it, but the company's benefit from financial incentive packages valued at more than $12 million, as well as the promise of fast-tracked building permits. So what's the problem here? I'm disappointed to see New Hampshire going down the path where we're offering special deals to specific large businesses rather than focusing on making our overall economic climate better for all businesses. This is Drew Klein, director of the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, a free market think tank. In these deals, Klein sees a muddying of the waters. When you introduce incentives, companies are no longer competing based purely on their products or their ideas or their talent. It's also suddenly about your lawyers and lobbyists. Big businesses like to play the game where they get to be insiders and they get cozy with the government and they rig the system in their favor. New Hampshire has avoided doing that to a large degree. If we go down the path of having the government favor big businesses over smaller competitors, that has the potential to really harm our economy in the long run. Exhibit A, the incentives deal that Klein finds hardest to swallow, was the legislature's passage last year of a tax break for companies in the business of growing human organs. The Manchester-based group Army, led by Dean Kamen, pressed for it with the promise of a new industry taking root here. Klein says it's not Army's fault, or BAE's, or Hitchner's, or Lanza's, for pursuing these deals. Any company would. Taylor Caswell is the Commissioner of Business and Economic Affairs. His office helped put together these deals, deals he would characterize as modest, comically quaint compared to what other states offer. But he says they're ultimately necessary. It helps in a number of ways. It helps us show that we have something competitive to put on the table with other states. It shows that there's a willingness from the state to have some skin in the deal. For Caswell, these are investments that pay off in jobs and economic growth. They don't meet the definition of corporate subsidy. They just hopefully produce a similar result. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Greg Leroy is with us here on Next. He's executive director of Good Jobs First. We just heard that story from New Hampshire Public Radio, and New Hampshire has set itself up as a different sort of state when it comes to corporate tax subsidies. In fact, when we look in your subsidy tracker, Greg, the amount of money that the state 
says it spends on subsidies is very, very small, and it's mostly for job training, $10,000 here, $20,000 there. Is New Hampshire different in terms of the way they play the corporate subsidy game? It is, and I'm actually reminded of another state that used to be like that, North Carolina. This is a kind of libertarian philosophy as it plays out in economic development, and frankly, I think there's a lot going for it, which is to say we're not going to pick winners and losers. We're not going to do gold-plated one-off projects for individual companies. We're going to try to keep our costs of doing business low. We're going to try to keep our regulations fair and our public services uh, good for everybody, but we're not going to do gold-plated deals. That was true also of North Carolina until they, quote, lost, and I'm putting air quotes around lost, (laughs) the BMW deal back in 1996. And that's what broke the dam. They said, oh, we lost the BMW deal, even though the state had been doing very well with its philosophy of we're going to have good roads and great universities and good schools and no gold-plated deals. Since then, the state has given away some enormous sums of money to individual transactions. They've had some terrible, rocky uh, deals like the Dell deal in Winston-Salem, to which the state gave more than $200 million and the place didn't last five years. I like the philosophy that had prevailed in New Hampshire without, and saying, look, there's still a place under the sun for incentives. Sometimes if we're talking about bringing a grocery store to a food desert, that's a good thing to do. If you're going to bring new skills to a citizen returning from incarceration, the private market's never going to do that, but it's a public good, absolutely. We're not saying no incentives, absolutely, but be stingy, be strategic. Make sure you're actually causing something to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But but having talked to lawmakers in many states in our region and across America, one thing mm. they say is, is that if all the states or nearly all the states are playing this game, it's very hard for them to compete for business if they don't use this corporate subsidy tool. In Connecticut, where I live, Often businesses will say, we just can't afford the high cost of living here, and if you don't do something for us, we're going to up and move to someplace that gives us a better deal. So what are politicians left to do? Well, so that's the unilateral disarmament argument. And if I were getting a dollar for every time I heard that speech, I'd (laughs) I'd be a wealthy man. Look, you have to break it down a couple different ways. If indeed Connecticut, instead of doing lots of expensive one-offs, were to say we're going to... apply that money to a really world-class workforce, you know, cradle to retirement uh, workforce development system, if we were going to make sure that our infrastructure was even better than it is now, if we were going to make sure that our state university and community college tuition rates remained really affordable, which encouraged people to get more education and stay here once they got those degrees, uh, I think you'd get a better bang for the buck, to be honest. I just think that's, I think there's lots of evidence to show that. I also think that um, when, you know, lots of businesses aren't mobile, right? It's only a subset of businesses that can credibly make an argument like that. A hospital can't leave its market. A utility company can't leave its market. A car dealer can't leave its market. They're there because that's where their client base is. That's where the electric grid is, et cetera. Certainly companies, manufacturing companies have the ability to move capital, but that's not most of the economy. Greg Leroy is executive director of Good Jobs First. If you want to check out some of his corporate subsidy tracking materials, you can find it all at nextnewengland.org. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You bet, John. Great to be with you. Coming up, remembering the great Boston molasses flood. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. On January 15, 1919, a tank of hot molasses burst, releasing a thick, sugary tsunami into the streets of Boston's North End. The accident has become neighborhood folklore. Just ask Nick Labonte, who works at Polcari's Coffee. Supposedly you can still smell the molasses when it gets hot enough. But the Great Molasses Flood was also a major disaster for the city. It killed 21 people, injured 150, and it shaped the relationship between business and government as we know it. On its centennial, reporter Julia Press looks back at the history, the science, and the impact of the Great Molasses Flood. We're in Boston's North End on Hanover Street, which is, I would say, the main street in the North End for activity, for businesses, for restaurants. That's Stephen Puglio, author of Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. On a brisk winter day, Puglio walked me through the scene of the flood in the place where it happened 100 years before. We climbed to the top of Copps Hill, where the British once fired at colonial revolutionaries, and found panoramic views of the spot where a 50-foot-tall steel molasses tank once stood. So, that green sign right there is exactly the site of the outside wall of the tank. Ships that would come up from Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the West Indies would pull up right along here. There was a pipe right here that led to the molasses tank, and they would offload gallons of molasses into the tank. So do you want to head down? Let's do it. The tank was built to be a holding vessel for molasses until it could be transported to a nearby distillery, where it was converted into industrial alcohol for World War I munitions. By the time of the flood, the war was over, and the molasses inside was expected to become rum in the last days before Prohibition. Perched right on Boston Harbor, the tank was perfectly situated in a hub of trade activity. This was one of the busiest commercial sites in all of Boston. Almost all of the shipping that left Boston to go up and down the East Coast and go to Europe left from this site. So there were deliveries all day long. This was a bustling, hustling kind of place. There were signs that the tank was faltering, but the people of the North End had gotten used to its instability. There were often comments made by people around the vicinity that this tank would shudder and groan every time it was full. And it leaked from day one. It was very customary for children of the North End to go and collect molasses with pails. So on the day of the flood, despite leaks and groans, no one anticipated that the tank was about to burst, unleashing a 30-foot-high wave of 2.3 million gallons of molasses that would move 35 miles an hour down Commercial Street. We saw this uh, big cloud of brown dust and dirt and a slight noise. Harry Howe was on leave from the Navy for the weekend. He and other sailors were some of the first people on the scene, as he recalled in a 1981 interview with the Stoneham Public Library. And there was uh, an arm sticking out from underneath the wheel of a truck. So two of us got a hold of his arm and pulled, and unfortunately, we pulled his arm off. The neighborhood was destroyed, coated in a thick, sticky layer of molasses. Researchers like Ronald Mayville have been fascinated by this incident, studying the causes behind it as a phenomenon of science and engineering. No one knows exactly why it failed, but one thing is very clear, it was underdesigned. On top of that, the steel that they used, although it was state-of-the-art of the day, we know today that it could be relatively brittle under certain circumstances. It's no wonder the tank burst. 
U.S. Industrial Alcohol, the company that owned the tank, had rushed to build it, employing an overseer who was an expert in finance, not engineering. When the company received complaints that the tank was leaking, it painted the tank brown to disguise the leaks rather than repair them. Besides the structural aspects of the tank, researchers have explored how the scientific properties of the molasses itself explain why the flood was so destructive. It's mostly the density of the molasses, so how much it weighs and how tall it is. That's Nicole Sharp, an aerospace engineer and science educator who has studied the fluid dynamics of molasses. You basically have a a giant stack of something that's really heavy, and as soon as you remove whatever's holding that, in this case the walls of the tank, all of that's going to rush out. And a lot of that potential energy that you had from stacking this thing up really high is going to turn into kinetic energy. It might as well be a tsunami. Two days before the accident, a new shipment of hot molasses had been added to the tank. So when it burst, the molasses inside might have been slightly warmer than the outside air. As it spilled out, it cooled down and thickened, trapping survivors in the mess. Rescue efforts continued for days, and cleanup took even longer. Immediately following the flood, 119 plaintiffs took up a civil lawsuit against U.S. Industrial Alcohol, the tank's owner. The case was historic in many ways. The first case in which expert witnesses were called to a great extent, engineers, metallurgists, architects, technical people. Stephen Puglio says it set the stage for future class action lawsuits and completely changed the relationship between business and government. There were very few regulations public regulations, employee safety regulations that businesses had to follow. So all the things we now take for granted in the business, that architects need to show their work, that engineers need to sign and seal their plans, that building inspectors need to come out and look at projects, all of that comes about as a result of the Great Boston Molasses Flood case. What's more, the accident brought an end to what had long been a thriving industry. U.S. industrial alcohol never rebuilt its tank, and the company closed its Boston production plant shortly after the tank's collapse. About 300 years of tradition in Boston, that is, molasses being an important part of the Boston economy, from the days of colonial times when they baked gingerbread and made baked beans, all of that really comes to a close. For a short time, the story was all anyone could talk about. Boston has seven daily newspapers at the time, and the molasses flood is so big for about a week that it knocks off the front page the Prohibition Amendment, which essentially passes the night of the molasses flood, and it knocks the Versailles peace talks, the the talks that ended World War I, off the front page. So it's an enormous story in Boston at the time. Boston politicians responded with outrage, but it didn't last long. Puglio thinks that's because of who was living in the North End, mostly Italian immigrants. They didn't have the political power to stop industry from taking over their waterfront or molasses from leaking onto the streets. And today, their story has been largely forgotten, aside from a plaque in the spot where the tank once stood. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Julia Press. If you want to see remarkable photos of the aftermath of the molasses flood, go to nextnewengland.org. The food landscape of our region has come a long way in the last hundred years. Today, New England cuisine is characterized by local farm-to-table producers. And each year, Yankee Magazine scours our landscape to celebrate the best artisan New England products through the Editor's Choice Food Awards. 
We invited back Amy Traverso, the senior food editor of Yankee Magazine, to tell us about some of the tastiest foods she's found in our region. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we talked to you last year, and we heard about a lot of great foodstuffs from around our region. But why don't you just remind our listeners how you go about finding the foods that you feature in these awards every year? Yeah, well, it's kind of a year-round process because as I um, work on stories for Yankee or we're out filming our show Weekends with Yankee, I'm on the road around New England all the time. And when I'm doing that, I'm stopping in at farmer's markets and, you know, gourmet shops and supermarkets looking for those local gems uh, that I may not have discovered yet, cheeses and jams and chocolates and things like that. And when we find one that looks interesting, we, you know, we buy it, we take it home and we sample it. And then we kind of have a running list through the year of all the products that we found. Are you finding more and more really cool locally made products all the time? Oh, it's such a huge industry. I mean, industry is probably maybe a a big word because a lot of these products are very uh, small scale and handmade. But the sort of artisan food economy is, is always expanding. And it's really exciting because you know, a lot of the stories we hear from our makers are that they maybe had a hobby like making jam and then their friend said, this is so good, you should sell this. And, you know, they start out at farmer's markets testing their products and then they have some success and turn it into a real business. So it's inspiring to see their initiative. It's interesting, though, you use that word economy. And I wonder if there's something to that. We've seen that certainly with the craft beer boom that's happened across our region, that you'd think that after a while there wouldn't be room for any more craft brewers. But in fact, what's happened is there's such a concentration that there's good products being supplied to these brewers. There's there's tours that people will go on. And all of a sudden, out of a few artisans, you get an economy. I wonder if that's happening in like the, the cheese making and the candy making world as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if anyone out there listening were to ask, you know, how many, how often did I go to a farmer's market 15 years ago? And how often do I go now? People are more open to making that extra step because they know they'll find something there that they can't find anywhere else. And also, I think all of us understand on some level that, say, with cheese, for example, New England dairy farmers took a major hit in the past 20 years in terms of being able to sell their milk Uh, on the commodity market and make a living. A lot of small family farms went out of business, and that means agricultural land gets lost. So when a farmer figures out that by partnering with a cheesemaker, they can make a product that actually can sustain their livelihood, that means uh, not only are we getting a delicious product to eat, but we're keeping farmland, you know, under agricultural easement instead of turning it into condos. So there's all these trickle-down benefits to supporting this economy. Since you're talking about cheeses, let's start there. I I know that there's a lot of really cool foods on this list, but what what cheeses did you find? So this year we awarded uh, two cheeses. One is called Pawlet. It's P-A-W-L-E-T. It's made by Consider Bardwell Farm. Uh, It's actually named after the town where it's made, which is Pawlet, Vermont. And uh, it is made with milk from cows raised uh, in the Champlain Valley. It is such a lovely, kind of nutty, um, earthy, buttery cheese. It's the ultimate uh, grilled cheese sandwich. Also a perfect cheese for making mac and cheese. I really love this cheese. And it's great with beer. And Vermont's you know, beer scene uh, is, craft beer scene is 
just going bonkers. So this one's a great pairing if you're into beer. Okay, so so that that's one cheese. What's your other? That's cheese? one, and the other one is uh, is is from Ruggles Hill Creamery, which is in Hardwick, Mass. Um, I think that Trisha Smith, the cheesemaker, makes the best uh, goat cheeses. Um, some of the best goat cheeses I've had in my entire life. This one's called Claire's Mandel Hill. It's named after one of her goats, Claire, and the hill where they actually uh, eat, uh, where they graze. And it's just, if, if you're somebody who doesn't like uh doesn't like goat cheese, try these cheeses because they are not in any way funky. They're just incredibly creamy and tangy and delicious. They're so good. I know that there's a lot of really interesting products here, but I don't know, have you featured spices before? And you've you've got one featured and maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the trends I'm seeing this year with food is I think for a while we went through this phase of this California cuisine, very simple, you know, take a perfect piece of asparagus and grill it and brush it with olive oil and there's your meal. Um, Now I think we're seeing partly uh, sort of on the tail of a, a growing interest in Middle Eastern and Eastern Mediterranean foods, we're seeing an interest in spice again and in layering flavor. So Curio Spice Company is a blender in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the owner is Claire Cheney. And she just original spice blends. And this one that we awarded is called Fleur, the French word for flower. And it it actually has flowers in it. It's got um, hibiscus, anise, fennel, um, lavender, rose, mint, coriander, cardamom. It's this incredible blend. And you could use it sort of like you would use the Middle Eastern spice blend Zatar. So you would maybe sprinkle it over grilled meats. You might sprinkle it over hummus or yogurt. It's just a bright, floral, but kind of tangy blend. Really lovely. I love that. I actually, I want to find some of that now. Yes. <laughs> I, maybe you could tell us one of the the backstories uh, of one of the the companies that you uh, that you profile uh, just down the road from where I live in Thomaston, Connecticut. You you found cookies at Savor. Tell us about them. I love these cookies. So Andre Kraft is the maker, and he is someone. He has a story that is is one of, you know is my favorite kind of maker story. Um, he had a career in graphic arts, and he kind of went through a moment in his life where he was like, "Is this what I want for the rest of my life?" And the answer was no. So he decided to pursue his passion, which was baking. So he makes these beautiful little um, shortbread cookies. But the cool thing about them is they're they're sweet, savory. Um, they're definitely sweet, but they they. Use usually have like a little sprinkling of sea salt or something that will make them versatile. So, and the flavors are really exotic. He does like a coconut lime chili and birch maple cranberry. But the one that we especially love is what is called a Nicosia cookie. That's the name of it. And it's lemon, rosemary, and a little bit of salt. And that salt makes it really versatile. So you could have it as, as dessert, but you could also put it on, say, a cheese platter and serve it with cheeses. And it would be a really nice accompaniment. When we were trying to figure out when we do this, we were hoping maybe maybe we could get up to Boston and sit down with you in part because you said you might make us cocktails. And you yes. Could, <laughs> <laughs> so you could, could you tell us about what cocktail you would make us if we were all sitting in the same oh, uh, studio together? Yes, I love this. So I love being an organized host, but you know that whenever you have a party, there's a lot of last minute chaos. And I never quite get around to having the perfect bar cart as much as I'd like that. So I like these shortcuts. And and so there's a, a company out of Providence, Rhode Island called Boot Black 
brand, um, and it's Paul Kubisky is the is the owner, and he does these mixes. So they're syrups that are pre mixed with really cool flavors that can be the foundations for a drink. So we're highlighting, especially because it's winter, we're highlighting this cranberry jalapeno and lime cocktail syrup. Now, so it has tart flavors and a little kick of spice from the jalapeno. It's not spicy, but it's got a nice heat, and you could mix that into a sort of New England version of a margarita. You could add, you know, some tequila and maybe a little bit of triple sec um, and then shake it up and you've got a cocktail. So it's a really, it takes the work out of blending beautiful craft cocktails. You could also mix it with seltzer for a non-alcoholic drink. And he has several different flavors, um, bases to make, say, Moscow mules or gin and tonics. The syrups are really versatile and he's he's adding new flavors all the time. And you're not seeing a, a, a saturation with all of this great farm-to-table food and Farmers markets, new small producers. I mean, is there a worry that as this becomes so much of what the the new New England culture is, that there's just going to be too much of it to really be sustainable? I think that certainly there's a limit to the market of people who can afford artisan cheeses, which, you know, are certainly more expensive. But what I'm seeing that excites me is with with the upper level, the higher end stuff getting very much established, there's a trickle down. So, for example, Cabot makes a line of uh, cheeses uh, that are so good. They're they're they do an Alpine style cheese. They do a sort of um, extra special cheddar, and I see them in supermarkets all the time. Um, uh, Polar Seltzer out of Worcester, I love what they're doing because they're doing these fun seasonal seltzer flavors. So they do a lime and ginger seasonal flavor that's just for the winter. Um, They do a cranberry cider seltzer. Um, Those are pretty like interesting, sophisticated flavor combinations in a very mass market seltzer product. So I think our appetite for good food isn't going away. And what's nice is seeing that extra level of uh, attention to detail and flavor and deliciousness happening at at different price points. Amy Traverso is the senior food editor of Yankee Magazine. They just put out their end-of-year special and so many great uh, food choice awards in there. It's become a little tradition to talk with you about food, and I, I really appreciate it, Amy. Thanks so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski, and the digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Christopher Anderson, Josephine Nayunai, and Kevin Stockdale. Thanks also to reporters Frankie Graziano and Nancy Cohen. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.